we are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there with me. I'm really thankful to get to teach from Gospel of Mark. Uh, we, as the elder team, talked and prayed the last few months about what we should do as our first sermon series to launch out a Sound City Bible Church and felt compelled to stick close to Jesus Reading through a gospel, we're going to look at Jesus every single week. We could study one of Paul's letters. That'd be wonderful. We could study an Old Testament book like Judges, something really violent. Like That'd be entertaining. But I uh, thought the best thing that we could possibly do with as many projects as we have to work on as a church, the best thing we could do would be to continue week after week after week to look at Jesus. So we're in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. We kicked it off last week, and we're going to pick up in verse 9. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through our whole passage today, verses 9 through 20, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work unpacking and, and seeing what it is that God wants to teach us today. So read along with me if you would. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately... He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately... They left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you gave us your word to teach us and train us and correct us and rebuke us and build us up. God, I pray today that you would give all of us hearts to receive and ears to hear your truth, your love, your grace. God, I pray you would help me to teach with, with passion and with clarity and with words of truth and words of help. God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you that in and through him we can be forgiven, cleansed of all of our sins and unrighteousness. And I pray today that you would send your Holy Spirit to be present with us now. Holy Spirit, would you bring to life these words in the book that you inspired to be written. And may all of our attention be turned to Jesus, in whose good name we pray. Everybody said, amen. I was thinking about this idea of following Jesus. The, 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 the story concludes, the passage that we looked at today concludes with Jesus calling these two pairs of brothers to follow him. And indeed, this call to follow Jesus is, is really the, the point of this passage. And I, I started thinking back to a few weeks ago when uh, I... I purchased a piano off of Craigslist. My mother is a music teacher. She wanted the girls to have a piano in the home. And so for Christmas, that was their present, was to, to buy our family a piano. And so I looked around at Craigslist, found one that looked good. And I thought, okay, this is great. Let's, let's go pick up this piano. And uh, I, I called 
the number and set up a time to come look at it and go see this piano. And, and, I, and, and I had the address. She gave me her address. And the, the woman on the other end of the phone, she said, do you know how to get to where it is? Gave me the address, kind of generally described where it was. And I said, well... No, I don't, but I've got your address so I can you know, plug it into my phone and I'll find it. She proceeded to then do something that I had a vague recollection of happening in my past in previous decades. She began to give me directions to her house. I thought, this, this is strange. This hasn't happened to me in years. I, I now, with my smartphone, or many of you have a smartphone or GPS, how many of you use your smartphone or GPS for, for directions, right? Like, we would be lost without it. My wife would be lost without it. Um, you, you don't often have to give people directions anymore because so many people have a smartphone and GPS, but that didn't stop this woman from giving me directions, and so she gave me directions, and I followed the directions, I mean my iPhone, and found my way right to her house the first time. It was very easy. Now, part B of this story, though, is I couldn't move the piano by myself, and so I enlisted the help of some men from the church, okay? A couple of you guys are in the room here. Uh, I enlisted the help of, of one guy from the church and two of the interns, and so uh, I said to them, I said to them, here's the address, but just follow me. That's the other way you can get places, right? That's the, that's the other trick, just follow me. And so on the way to where the piano was, it all worked out great. They followed me, it was, it was wonderful. We loaded the piano up, I was in my car and they were in theirs and they were following me from the place where the piano was to my house, but then something happened. I hit the green light and they didn't. And so they're, they're a ways behind me. So I drove extra slow, trying to let them catch up to me. And I thought that I saw them. I wasn't sure if I saw them. And then after a minute, I get a phone call and said, yeah, we thought we were following you. And then we turned on I-5 South, and now we're coming up on the university, and we're super lost. So I gave them my address, and they plugged it into their phone, and they made it uh, to my house. No problem. So this idea of following, like, it can be difficult. It can be dangerous when you have one car following another or one person following another. And even today in this story, we're going to see Jesus' call to follow him takes different twists and turns. And so I begin with just a question. Will you follow Jesus? No matter who you are, no matter what stage of life you are in, the call and the question to you today is, will you follow Jesus? And we're going to look at these three stories. In, in fact, they're, they're so short, it's kind of hard to even call them stories. They're really more snapshots or vignettes of the life of Jesus. But we're going to see today that there's a call to follow Jesus in these three areas, following Jesus into the waters of baptism, following Jesus into the wilderness through trials and temptation, and following Jesus as he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom and preaches a message of repentance and forgiveness. So that's the question, will you follow Jesus? So let's, let's remember also that these stories of Jesus are not merely interesting stories about his life, interesting uh, tidbits of information. This is profoundly, deeply impacting truth for all of our lives. And I, I, I hope I don't sound overdramatic when I say this, but there were multiple times this week as I was uh, reading and studying and praying and preparing this message that I, I literally found myself in tears just worshiping Jesus because the news is so good. So I don't know if you need some good news today, but guess what? I have the best possible news. I have the gospel of Jesus Christ and I hope to proclaim it joyfully to you and I hope that you will receive it gladly because it's the only thing I've got the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's look at these stories. The baptism of Jesus, the first one, starting in verse nine. In those days, so in those days meaning last week we looked at John the Baptist, John the baptizer, his ministry of, of baptizing people, calling them to repent. John gained a significant following. He became rather famous. And so it's during those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. Mark, you just 
his storytelling is just so hurried. Like, well, who is this Jesus? Well, he just, don't worry about it. Like, he's, he's here. Follow him. Let's go. Pay attention. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, there's our word. That word immediately is probably going to start driving you nuts by the time we're done with this study of the book of Mark. But I want you to notice just how urgent Mark is in his writing. Immediately. He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Very, very abrupt start to the story of Jesus. Here's Jesus. He gets baptized. Okay. More information, please? Nope. Moving on. Desert. Jesus appears on the scene and then he is baptized. And it immediately, to me at least, brings up a very important question. Why was Jesus baptized? If you remember last week, we studied John the Baptist. John the Baptizer was preaching a message of repentance and forgiveness. He said, you need to be baptized in repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. And so great crowds of people. Uh, I mentioned that one scholar I read last week estimated it was about 300,000 people came to hear the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. A large number came out to hear John the Baptist. And it was, they were being baptized for repentance. But Knowing what we know about Jesus, we know that Jesus was not sinful. We know that Jesus did not need to be baptized. It's not in Mark's gospel, we don't see it, but in Matthew, we actually see that John the Baptist protests. He knows who Jesus is. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why should I baptize you? I need to be baptized by you, John the Baptist says to Jesus. Some have thought that Jesus, because of this strong declaration from the Father, you are my son, some have actually said incorrectly, but they have said that Jesus was a regular man who at that moment of his baptism became the Son of God. This is known as adoptionism, an ancient church heresy that's been denounced for over 1,500 years, but it still exists today in certain forms. Jesus was basically just a regular guy, very, very devoted follower of God. God chose him to be the, the savior of the world, to die on the cross. And so at this moment, he adopted him. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. But we know that that's not true. Why? We know that it's not true because the message of the Christian gospel is not that a man becomes God, but that God becomes a man. The incarnation of the Son of God is one of the central tenets of the Word of God in the Orthodox Christian faith. In fact, John 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God and the Word was God, that, that Jesus existed eternally with the Father. And it says in John 1, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that the eternal Son of God became a man, not that a man became the Son of God. So we know that that can't be true. We know, those of us who are Christians who have studied the Bible, we know that Jesus was indeed sinless. He did not need to repent. Jesus didn't need to repent of sin. Why would he go to John the Baptist for that? Those are both bad reasons why people have tried to explain that, that Jesus would go be baptized. So what's the real reason? I want to come back to that in a moment. I want you to, to think about that for a minute. I want to take a quick detour because I believe there's a clue in this passage that really gives us a lot more understanding to what Mark is getting at. Mark uses this phrase, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. That is an unusual phrase. Torn open, the heavens being torn open. That is not something that we find throughout the pages of Scripture. So in my study this week, 
came to find that there's really only one other place that the scripture uses that same language of the heavens being torn open, and it's in the prophet Isaiah. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'll invite you to flip back to Isaiah chapter 64 for a minute. I want to look at what John is getting at. I think that by using that phrase torn open, uh, Mark rather, I should say, Mark is giving us a clue into what's in the back of his mind, and it's in Isaiah chapter 64. So read along with me in your Bible or, or on the screen if you want. It says this, this is the prophet Isaiah praying to God nearly 700 years before Jesus ever came. This is what he says. Oh, that you would rend or tear the heavens and come down. I want you to tear open the heavens and come down. The idea being that heaven and earth are not separated by a great distance. You cannot get in a rocket ship and fly to heaven, that heaven is near, but heaven and earth are separated, as it were, by a curtain. That's the imagery that the Bible uses. There's a curtain that separates God's domain, which is heaven, and our domain, which is earth. And the, the prophet is praying and crying out, God, would you tear that curtain? Would you rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil? Like, make some noise, God. We want you to come down and and make your name known to your adversaries. God, we want you to come deal with your enemies, these sinful people who do not follow you. This is the prayer of Isaiah, that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. He's kind of saying like, like the good old days, God, we want you to come down like you did with Moses. And like when you, when you took out Pharaoh and all those Egyptians, we want you to come down to deal with your adversaries. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. So the first part of this prayer is Isaiah basically saying, God, we want you to come down and deal with sin. Deal with the problem. The world is messed up. They're sinners. You have enemies. People don't follow you. We want you to deal with it. But then it turns here in verse five. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. God, you're close to those who who walk in your ways and walk in righteousness. Behold, you were angry, uh uh-oh, and we sinned. We, the people of God, God's chosen nation, Israel, the people that God had specifically chosen to teach about himself, to train them in his ways. We sinned, and in our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And our, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the, even the good things we try to do, God, are, are filled with mixed and sinful motives. How many of you know that you can do good things from a sinful and impure motive? We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself. There's no one, no one who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. It's, it's, God, we want you to come down. We want you to deal with sin. We want you to deal with those wicked people. And, oh, Lord, we're sinful. We're wicked. You've caused us to melt. But now, oh, Lord, you are our Father. That's an important word. You are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not terribly angry, O Lord, 
and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Israel, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, was like a son to God. God, would you remember that you're our father and we are like your son? Would you treat us as a loving father would treat a son? Would you remember not our iniquity forever? When you come down to to deal with sin, when you tear open the heavens to, to come down to deal with this sin problem once and for all, would you remember us and would you call us your son and we would call you our father? And this is so beautiful because at this moment we see the heavens being torn open and the God who came to enter into human history to deal with sin is Jesus. It's Jesus And at this moment, Jesus actually steps into the place that Israel themselves was supposed to occupy. Israel was given by God a mandate to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Israel was chosen and called God's son so that they would be a picture of God's grace to all of the nations of the world. Jesus, at this moment, steps in as the new Israel. He's the new representative. And God speaks this word of love to him. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And that gives us a really interesting insight into the reason why, why Jesus was baptized. Jesus fulfills this prophecy, this prayer from hundreds of years before. God has come down to deal with sin once and for all, and Jesus is the true son, the true Israel. When Jesus hears the message of repentance and baptism, Jesus goes into the waters not to repent of his own sin, but to identify with us in ours. Jesus goes into the waters of baptism to identify with us in our fallen sinfulness. Think about that. John, again, not in Mark's gospel, because Mark gives us such little information, but we see this in In the other gospels, John, the baptizer, actually points out Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the one who will take away the stain of sin. And so when the people go into the water, as it were, uh, nothing magical but symbolic to show that their sins go into the water and when they come up from the water, they're clean. Jesus, in fact, goes into the water to take our sins upon himself. Jesus is the one who comes to identify with us in our weakness, in our fallenness, in our sinfulness. That doesn't seem very fair, does it? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus goes into the water of baptism to identify with us. But here's where it gets really good. We go into the water of baptism. We are joined with, we are united with Christ. I want to read to you the way that the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 explains this idea of being baptized into Christ. Read this with me. This is Galatians 3 verses 27 through 29. It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's an interesting phrase. Like, it's like you put on Christ. It's like, almost like you're putting on clothes. It's a strange phrase. But what it means is when you're baptized into Christ, you share in Christ's righteousness. It means that God looks at you through the lens of Christ Jesus. There is 
neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The distinctions don't matter. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That word heir is not a particularly powerful term in our culture and in our context. If any of you have ever gotten an inheritance from a relative or someone who passed away, uh, it probably was, was good, but it wasn't maybe quite as important as it was. In these cultures, you lived by the inheritance of your parents. It was incredibly important. If you did not get a share of the inheritance, you literally could die and your family line could be cut off. Today, if we get an inheritance, it's like, oh, sweet, well, I'm gonna buy a jet ski, right? Like back then, the inheritance was absolutely vital and important. If you didn't get an inheritance, you were cut off. You didn't have a share in the family name anymore. And what it says here is that if you are baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, rich, poor, man, woman, Everyone who accepts Jesus receives an equal share of the inheritance that Jesus himself gets. That means Jesus gets all of heaven's glory for all of eternity. You know what that means we get? We get all of heaven's glory for all of eternity. Jesus gets, you know what Jesus gets? Jesus gets the public identification as a beloved son of the heavenly father. And it's true about you. If you have been baptized into Christ, then the words that the Father spoke over Jesus on the day of his baptism are true about you as well. You are now God's beloved son or daughter, and he is well pleased with you. He is well pleased with you. Oh yeah, but pastor, you don't, you don't know the stuff I've done. Yeah, I don't, because I'm not spying on you like a creep. <laughs> but God knows and God sees, and God still speaks that word of love over you. If you have been baptized into Christ, Christ goes into those waters for, for identifying with you, but then he invites you into those waters to share as a full heir according to the promise. You are God's beloved son or daughter. I want to read this quote to you from a scholar N.T. Wright. One of the commentaries I read this week, it says the whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point. That when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves because we put on Christ, remember? Not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. It sometimes seems impossible, especially to people who have never had this kind of support from their earthly parents, but it's true. God looks at us and says, you are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted with you. Try reading that sentence slowly with your own name at the start and reflect quietly on God saying that to you, both at your baptism and every day since. God's beloved son or daughter. Doesn't matter what anyone else has said to you. Doesn't matter what other identity you've adopted. This is the one that trumps all. This is the one that trumps all. Is that good news? Is that good news? Jesus went into the waters of baptism to identify with us in our sin. 
We go into the waters of baptism to identify with him as beloved sons and daughters. So here's the takeaway for this first section is when you follow Jesus into his baptism, you share in his identity as a beloved son. Man, that's good news. That's only part one. I got two more here. Let's keep going. Jesus' temptation. Picking back up in verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That just cracks me up because it's like, like what, is he still dripping wet? Just buy him off into the wilderness. Maybe, I don't know. That's sure how Mark writes it. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That's all. <laughs> the end. Now those of you who are familiar with the other gospel stories know there's a few things missing here, Right? But even if you were somebody who was not familiar with the other gospel narratives, the other gospel stories, you might have a few questions, right? Like, did Jesus immediately go from the waters of the river out into the wilderness? And 40 days, what was he doing out there for 40 days? It's kind of hard to live in the wilderness, right? And what's with the wild animals? And, and by the way, this being tempted by Satan, that sounds interesting. Is there more we can know about this? Like, what kind of temptations did Satan do? And how did the angels minister to him? I think this makes me think of, you know, I'm from Alaska originally. One time I went to the wilderness for two days with my brother looking for wild animals, and I was indeed tempted by Satan to kill my brother because it was such an awful experience. But I just, I just want to know more about it. I'm just curious. I want to know more about it. I want you to see how closely it is tied to Jesus' baptism. I do believe that Mark, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, wrote that intentionally. Baptism, immediately, wilderness, temptation. In fact, I would say, in, in my experience in pastoral ministry, and I, I know that many of you would probably agree that it is common for a believer in Jesus Christ to go from a moment of great spiritual joy, a great spiritual height, and then immediately face challenging or difficult circumstances. Show of hands, anybody ever experienced that in your life? Absolutely. Jesus goes from his, his, the greatest, most loving words that have ever been spoken, and then here comes Satan to harass and tempt. His name means the slanderer, the accuser. Jesus goes from the greatest moment of just closeness and relationship with his father to the greatest moment thus far of trial and temptation. And indeed, I would actually encourage you to see this. Trial and temptation go together. I think in our minds, uh, go, go back for one second here if you would please. Trial and temptation, they, they go together um, not very often in our minds because we think trials like I'm going through this difficult season over here and temptation like Satan is dangling a carrot and he wants to, to get me to, to you know, follow that. But I've actually seen, again, experience shows and the scripture backs it up that Trials and temptation often go together. You're in a season of difficulty. You're in a place of pain or hurt. And then all of a sudden, Satan shows up with some sort of temptation that's going to make you feel better. Going to make you feel better. I know your heart was meant to be satisfied in Christ alone. I know that this is a difficult time and he wants you to endure because he's going to make you more like himself. But wouldn't it just be easier and feel better to just take this easy way out? How many of you, show of hands, how many of you seen trial and temptation go very hand in hand? It's not uncommon. It's not uncommon at all. There's a, there's a verse in uh, 2 Corinthians that talks about, uh, the, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, fears without and, and fights with, I'm sorry, fighting without and fears within, meaning there's this external fight, there's this circumstances happening out here, and then all of a sudden these fears crop up within me. Anybody ever experienced that? You have real circumstances going on in your life that are painful. Maybe it's financial hardship or sickness or relational difficulty, but then inside you're just wrapped up and fretting and waking up at night. 
Here's the thing. All these guys, you guys keep giving away. I, I, I wanted them to wait on this slide because this is a pretty dramatic moment in the sermon. Um, high art of drama in this. But listen, here's the thing. I want you to see this. It's all good. I want you guys to see this. There are verses in the Bible that promise us things that we never put on coffee cups or mouse pads, okay? We are guaranteed, we are promised. I want to make a little book, little pamphlet, Promises from God, and I want to put all these types of verses in them, okay? Happy Sunday. All right, go to that slide. This is, this is the moment, okay? All these different New Testament authors promise us, guarantee us, that in this life we will face difficulty and trials and temptations, right? So the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 3, says, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Happy Sunday. James, you know, the, the brother of Jesus. This is James's letter. This is, this is his opening verse, by the way. Hi, James, you know, Apostle Jesus. Count it all joy when, not if, when you meet trials of various kinds. The Apostle Peter. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know that there have at least been a few of you who at times of going through a difficult moment, like, this is strange. Why should this be happening to me? It's not strange. All those who desire to live a godly life will face persecutions, struggles, trials, temptations. And then Jesus himself, in the world you will have tribulation. Jesus said, no servant's greater than the master. If, you, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Like it's, 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 it's a difficult road sometimes. But here's the really good news. We are also promised that God himself will keep us in trial and in temptation. 1 Peter 5, these are some really encouraging words. The same author who just said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. 1 Peter 5 verse 10 says, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Is that encouraging? After you've suffered a little while, I would remind you a little while, this is the same author, Peter, who said that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So his definition of a little while might be different than your definition of a little while. Might be your whole life. I don't know. But he says... That God will himself, God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And in temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. If you have a pen or a highlighter, I want to encourage you, underline these words in your Bible right now. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I would say, I told you to underline this because um, I have seen this verse be maybe one of the most misquoted verses in the whole Bible. How many of you have ever heard someone say, God won't give you more than you can handle? To which I would say, living as a fallen sinful human being in a fallen sinful world is already more than I can handle. Amen? That's why I need a savior. His name is Jesus. The verse says, with temptation, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability and beyond that which he will give you a way to escape from. Christian, if you are a Christian, hear me in this. You are free to say no to sin. You are free to say no to sin. What you're facing 
No matter how long it's been a part of your life, you are now free to say no, and God himself will see you through it. Have you thought about that? I, I understand. Nobody is uh, under the, the false pretense that we're going to all of a sudden now be perfect Christians and never sin. That's, that's nonsense. But I would say to you this, don't get comfortable with your sin. Don't get comfortable with your sin saying, well, everybody's a sinner and so thankful for Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul said, I'm not going to abuse the grace of God so that his grace might increase. I'm not going to keep on sinning just so that grace might, might increase. No, no, no. We say no to sin. I think it is possible, because I believe the word of God, I think it is possible for Christians to grow in grace and grow in their pursuit of Jesus in such a way that they look more like Jesus and they say no to sins today that they used to say yes to yesterday. Do you agree with me? I believe that God has called us to holiness. I believe that God has called us to righteousness, not legalism, not self-help, not pull yourself up by your bootstraps or be better than other people, but true Christ-fearing, Christ-empowered, spirit-wrought holiness. God has given us the ability to escape from the temptation. That's good news for you, church. It's really good news for you. I want you to see this. In your life, you will go through trials and you will go through temptations, but have faith. Jesus went through the temptations and the trials first. Jesus went into the wilderness to identify with us in our trials and temptations. When we go through these wilderness times, we get to identify with his victory. So that's the takeaway for this section. When you follow Jesus into his sufferings, you share in his victory over sin and death. When you follow Jesus into his sufferings, you share in his victory over sin and death. Now one more. Let's turn our attention to the kingdom of God for a minute here. Now after John was arrested... Oh, thanks for mentioning that, Mark. Didn't know that that happened. Okay. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the message of God. The gospel is news. The gospel is not something you do. The gospel is something you hear and receive. Jesus came in proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. God's kingdom, kingdom of God or even the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew often writes it, they're the same thing, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, is the biggest feature of Jesus' preaching ministry. He preaches the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? What does it mean that Jesus preached the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is not a far-off, distant, uh, ethereal idea, but it is a very real and present reality. Here's the idea of the kingdom of God. God creates a world in perfect peace and harmony and shalom and whatever words you want to use there, it's right, it's good, God says. There's no sin, there's no destruction, there's no devastation. It is exactly how it is supposed to be under the wise, loving, gracious rulership of the king, God. But in Genesis 3, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, our first parents, said to themselves, no, we don't want to trust God's kingship. We would like to be the king and the queen. We would like to rule ourselves. And so they set up their own insurrectionist, rebellious kingdom, and we have been living out that ever since. Uh, every time you choose to live according to your will and your desires, you are saying, I do not want to submit to the kingship of God. I want to be my own king. 
That is what has led to every struggle, every breakdown, every relational breakdown, every racism, classism, you name it. I love the way that uh, Pastor Tim Keller puts it. He says, when we decide to be our own center or our own king, everything falls apart physically, socially, spiritually, and psychologically. So when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand, remember that prophecy that we read earlier in Isaiah 64? They were longing. God, when will you come back and set things right? When will you put the world in order? When will you deal with all this sin and all this destruction and all this wickedness? God, when will you do it? Jesus says the time is fulfilled. It's here. No more waiting. God has entered into human history to bring his wise and loving and gracious rulership in and through me. It's Jesus. Jesus brings the kingdom of God. And indeed, we're instructed as Christians to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayer is not that we would float away and go to the kingdom of God. Our prayer is that God would have his kingdom crash onto earth and that we would get to be participants in the, in the movement, as it were. Indeed, we see at the end of Revelation, the story doesn't end with us floating away to the kingdom of heaven. It says that they sees, uh, the, the apostle John sees a city descending from heaven and coming to earth, that God's kingdom comes to earth. So every time we preach the gospel, we're preaching the kingdom. We're preaching more than just you need to be converted. It's you need to be converted and live on mission for God's kingdom. That's the, the kingdom of God. Jesus preaches this gospel of the kingdom, and the way into this kingdom is to repent and believe. Repent. Sound City Bible Church, are we afraid of using the word repent? No, we are not, because contrary to popular belief, even in some church circles, the word repent is a great gift from God. Repentance is a great gift from God. It means there's hope. It means we don't have to continue in our prideful, arrogant kingdom that says, no, God, I would like to be in charge. We could turn. We can turn. We can have a change of heart. We can have a change of mind. We can have a change of direction and say, God, I will trust in you and in your kingdom and in your king, the crucified king, Jesus. And believe, have faith. It's not just repentance like be down, but have faith and rejoice that you're forgiven, that you can know because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that your sins are forgiven, your citizenship is now in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and you are no longer living for yourself and your own pathetic, if I could use that word, kingdom, but you're living for the great and grand and glorious kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is doing. This is kingdom ministry. Repent of your sins, trust in him, and then he beckons people to follow him. And this is where we, we meet some new characters. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, uh, Simon, who's also known as Peter, the Apostle Peter. Peter's like his nickname. It means Rocky, basically. Like, and I like that because it gives you a little bit of an insight into Jesus and, and Peter and kind of Peter's personality and their relationship. I like it. So Simon, or Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. As Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And here it is, here's our word. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Like, I wonder what happened to the nets. Somebody else just come along and pick them up? 
Mark is not interested in telling us. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, another set of brothers, mending the nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him like, Dad, peace, we're following this guy. Like, you need to see, too, for, for, for Zebedee in particular, this is like a business. This isn't just dad and two boys out doing some fishing. There's hired men. This is a small business. This is the equivalent of me walking into your office and being like, hey, put down that spreadsheet. I'm going to teach you to spreadsheet for men. The analogy doesn't work. I need to think of something better. But you get the idea. I mean, Jesus walks into their place of employment and says, stop. And yes, I know that's your family right there. That you're working for your father's business, your small business, your place of employment. I need you to leave everything. I need you to follow me right now. This is really important. It's about the kingdom of God. And they did it. It's amazing. Just, just think about that moment for a minute. And have you ever worked with like your parents or worked with family? I used to work for my dad when I was in high school before he fired me. Um, right? Like just somebody just walks in, come follow me. Let's go. Wow. Who are these people? This, these two, two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John. And the way the story is presented, Jesus just basically walks in their place of employment. So they need you to leave family, they need you to leave business, and they just dropped everything and they went with Jesus. Leave your family. That's, that's, that's dramatic. Uh, in our increasingly individualistic society, it may not be quite that dramatic, but for many of us, it would be. Is your devotion to Jesus stronger than your devotion to family? After the first service, I had a gentleman come up to me and talk to me about how after he became a Christian, he was estranged from his wife and children for a number of years before God was gracious enough to restore those relationships. Sometimes, and some of you know this, some of you know that following Jesus comes at a price with family relationships. I've known people, I haven't talked to my parents, I haven't talked to my siblings for years since I became a Christian, since I started following Jesus. Some of you may hold back on your following of Jesus because you're afraid of your family. Or you've been talked out of, don't be a fanatic, don't be a religious zealot. You want to follow Jesus with wholehearted devotion, but your family's talked you out of it. You've been more invested in those relationships than in the relationship with Jesus. Or what about business and finance? Again, our culture is increasingly individualistic. Maybe it's, maybe it's not so dramatic for you to leave your, your family, but for many of us, leave your business. Leave your business. What if God just asked you to pack up your business, follow him? Is your work more important than Jesus? Well, no, of course, I need to provide for my family. Of course, we're not talking about being irresponsible or doing something that the scriptures don't talk about. You know, scriptures talk about providing and feeding your family and all those sorts of things, but is it more important than Jesus? Do you trust in him more than your business, or do you just trust in your business more than him? Would you be willing to lay it aside like these disciples did? And, and here's the thing. Those are, those are strong calls I put before you today. I understand how serious those are. But in case you haven't yet picked up on the pattern, Jesus goes first. And he doesn't call us to do anything or go anywhere that he himself has not already done for us. Jesus existed in heaven in the glory of God, surrounded by the angels, being worshipped day and night. And do you know what he did? 
He got off of his throne. He stepped out of the closest, most intimate place of relationship with the Father to enter into human history, to live a humble, marginalized, peasant life, to become a traveling, itinerant preacher, proclaiming the gospel, preaching this message, living a sinless life, and ultimately going to the cross to die for our sins. And on the cross, Jesus faced the greatest separation from family because it says the Father forsook him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That the closeness of their relationship, Jesus left relationship with the Father. Jesus was willing to go through that so that you and I might be reconciled to the Father. We saw how beautiful that relationship was and Jesus was willing to go through abandonment so that you and I would never have to. Jesus was willing to lay aside the riches of heaven so that he might share them with us. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That word servant doesn't even really carry the full weight and connotations of what it would have in this day. When, when Paul's writing to the Philippians, it was a highly stratified culture. There was a pecking order, and you did not cross the lines of the pecking order, and a slave was the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. So here is God himself in glory being willing to be at the bottom of the pecking order, being humbled and humiliated for you and for I being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is willing to humble himself to be impoverished so that you and I might share in heaven's riches. I love the way that Billy Graham paraphrased it. Jesus showed us the depths of God's love by willingly leaving heaven's glory and sharing in our poverty. Jesus left heaven's glory to share in our poverty. And so here's the takeaway from this is when you lay things aside to follow Jesus, you're invited to share in heaven's riches. Man, that's some good news. I don't know about you. I needed some good news this week. When you follow Jesus into the waters of baptism, he identifies with your sin and you receive a new identity. When you follow Jesus through trials and temptations, he identifies with you in your weakness and you get to share in his victory. And when you follow Jesus into proclaiming the gospel, he identifies with us in our poverty, but we get to share in the riches of heaven. That's it. That's it. I want to close with this thought briefly. I want to remind you, and I always want to put before you, before I make this call, I want to remind you one more time that Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself has not already done. And the reason why I want to remind you, and, and I, I will probably annoy you the more that you listen to me preach. I probably already do annoy you, but I will annoy you more the more that you hear me preach, because I want to be relentless about pointing out to you the difference between a works-minded approach and a gospel-minded approach. I don't know about you, but I am very prone to a works-minded approach. 
I want to follow Jesus. I want to get baptized. I want to endure through suffering. I want to proclaim the gospel because I'm good, because I'm strong, because I'm tough, and because it's the right thing to do. No, 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 no. The gospel approach is Jesus already did it. Jesus goes before, and we are now free to joyfully follow him. So when I say these things, you hear it through a gospel lens. So where is Jesus asking you to follow him? Is it into faith? Do you need to get saved? Some of you here are not Christians. You're at church because you're interested or you're curious or because someone dragged you here. All are legitimate reasons, okay? Do you need to get saved? Do you need to follow Jesus in faith? Some of you need to be baptized. Some of you have been Christians, but you've never been obedient to go into the water to identify with Jesus, his death, his resurrection. And I would say today, I believe we have one person signed up to get baptized at this service. Um, if others want to go and get baptized, we have a change of clothes and towels and Pastor Travis and some other leaders will be out there to talk to you. We would love to have you get baptized to identify with Jesus. And for the rest of you who've already been baptized, you're going to celebrate today. Every time someone goes under the water and comes back up, I want you to hear those words for them and for you Beloved son, beloved daughter, your father is well, please. We ought to celebrate that, right? So when people get baptized, we cheer, we hoot, we holler. Look, if people can scream about Cam Chancellor running back 80-yard, uh, you know, touchdown pick six, right? That's good. That's wonderful. Trust me, it was awesome. We get to watch people pass from death to eternal life. We ought to party, church. Some of you need to respond to Jesus in faith and in baptism. Some of you need to respond to Jesus in faith in the middle of a difficult season. You're going through your season of trials. You're going through your season of temptation. Maybe you're trying to get out of it. You know, trying to go around the valley of the shadow of death and God has you walking through it. Some of you are, are tempted to take that bait that Satan's presenting to you saying, oh yeah, it would be easier. That would feel better. You need to identify with Jesus. Follow him through those hard times. He will be faithful to you. Some of you need to follow Jesus in laying aside things that you love more than him. Are there relationships? Are there businesses? Are there uh, activities that you love more than Jesus? Even good things. Do you love them more than Jesus? And Jesus is saying, follow me. I need to lay those things aside. So how will you follow Jesus this week? Will you follow Jesus? And how will you follow Jesus this week? That's my question to you. And don't ever forget, Jesus never calls us to follow somewhere that he himself has not already gone for us. So I'm going to invite us to a time of response. Now we're going to respond uh, in a couple of ways as we do. We're going to respond first with the giving of our tithes and offerings. And so I'll invite the financial stewards to come forward and collect the offering now if they would. I will remind you, we do not give out of obligation or, or just duty, but we give out of joyful love and response to God. If you are a guest, as Pastor Travis said, we have no, um, uh, you're not under any obligation to give. You're welcome to give if you would like, but you're not under any obligation to give. While they are collecting the offering, I'll have the guys throw up some community group discussion questions on the screen. And this week, I'd love you to talk about this passage and talk about some of the ideas that we discussed. So first question is, why did Jesus get baptized? And why do we? Talk about how Jesus gives us a new identity. Maybe it'd be a good exercise for you to kind of share before Jesus what your identity was wrapped up in, how Jesus has changed you and given you a new identity. What trials or temptations are you facing? Some of you need to talk about the difficulties you're going through. Some of you are sitting there trying to be so strong in your own strength, 
You need to talk about these things. And how is Jesus currently meeting you in those difficulties? Talk about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? What is it not? And then lastly, if you want to get really real, what has Jesus asked you to lay aside for his sake? And what is he asking you to lay aside now? Where are you maybe resisting God's call to follow him? All of these questions, as well as the, the sermon, we, we post those up in our um, online community. So if, again, that's another good reason to be a part of it so you can access this material. Also going to invite you to, if you want to, to get baptized. Like I said, we have leaders and, and, and pastors out there in the lobby who'd love to talk with you, pray with you, give you a change of clothes. We have t-shirts, we have shorts, we have towels, I even think. So that's awesome. I will say to those of you, when we come forward for communion, we do have some mats set up here to catch some of the water and the drip. So please be careful and watch your step. Speaking of communion, we're going to respond with the celebration of the Lord's table. We come to the table, the bread, we dip it in the wine or the juice to remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for us. So if you are a Christian, even if you're a guest or visiting, we practice an open table, you're welcome to come forward. If you're not a Christian, you are more than welcome to become a Christian today and take communion for the first time. We'd love to invite you to that. And we're also going to sing. The band's going to lead us in some songs. They have a great uh, just set of songs talking about following Jesus. His first one is just that prayer of surrender. Father, thy will be done. No matter what my path looks like, no matter what it is that you ask me to do, I want to follow you. And so I would invite you to sing and, and, and praise him loudly and joyfully today. Will you do that, church? Will you respond with joy? I'm going to do this. Let's, I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to begin our time of response here. Father, I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you, Father, that you sent your son Jesus into the world to live, die, rise again for us. Jesus, thank you that when you call us to follow you, it's because you've gone there first. Jesus, for some of us, we need to follow you today into the waters of baptism. We need to become Christians and get baptized. Some of us, God, we need to keep following you through a difficult season, through trials and temptation. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Jesus, some of us need to follow you in laying aside things that we love more than you into the, the proclamation of your kingdom and the spread of the good news. Help us to respond now with faith and with joy. And everybody said, amen. All right, church, let's respond together when you're ready.